This is episode 82 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his sixth appearance on the podcast. He's the digital content coordinator for the Edmonton Elks and a contributor to the HockeyWriters.com, Brian Swain. Brian, it's good to have you back on the show. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. It's a, it's a great time for the Oilers. Uh, Connor McDavid had his birthday this week, and I also had my birthday on Sunday, so we both got our birthday wish with a, a big win to keep their winning streak going. And uh, yeah, overall, uh, just uh, staying warm in this uh, frigid cold weather that I know that we're, we're both experiencing right now in uh, Edmonton and Saskatoon. Yeah, we're part of uh everyone's getting hit with it pretty hard. I I know we're we're just about out of the worst of it now here in Edmonton. So hopefully that uh that comes your way too. Yeah, well, one week from today I'll be in Mexico, so I'll be Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> going to the leaving the plus or leaving the minus 35 weather and going to the plus 35 weather. Oh, this the the, the timing would have been perfect if this had arrived a week later, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um I I was actually thinking originally of uh, booking the trip uh, in February that would have lined up with the Oilers uh, bye week, but I'll I'll be down there still watching all the games. I man I managed to watch last year when I went to Mexico. I, I watched all three games uh, that they played the week I was down there, including another one on the flight home, which was a little more challenging with Wi-Fi issues. But I uh, I always uh, never want to miss a game. Is it the Sportsnet broadcast you get there? Uh, you know, I think it's satellite, but yes, okay. it, it was, it was the Sportsnet uh, feed for them. Uh, right. They have, they have a sports bar there. Well, well, multiple ones on the resort, but uh, I asked the the guy working at the bar just if he could turn one of the TVs over to uh, the hockey game. And uh, they were able to f- get the Oilers game for me, which was awesome. I, I didn't know if they'd be able to put it on or not. And it's funny, another day that I, I came in there one evening and there was a whl game going on on the tv huh. i think it was moose jaw and prince albert and i'm like you know getting the oilers game on tv in mexico is one thing but to see like two saskatchewan teams from the dub playing that really caught me off guard that is pretty wild moose jaw and prince albert in mexico eh? there you yeah, go i didn't think i'd ever see that but there's a lot of canadians down there too so i'm guessing someone Elsa uh, in the uh, the sports bar had requested it, but right. um, so like I said, it is episode eighty two. I've had you on the podcast in the past when an episode number has matched an Oilers legends jersey number, but I think the greatest significance that number eighty two has to the Oilers would probably be the year Wayne Gretzky broke the single season goals record and hit two hundred points for the first time, wouldn't it? I. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I was. I'm just thinking. What you got me thinking? What was going on in '82? Was that the the the, uh, the miracle at Manchester? Was it was. I, I no, that was '82. I was trying to pick a more positive yeah. one, but uh, I mean, that was the first year that the Oilers really ascended to the top of the standings and became a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Uh, right. They they ended up obviously, like you said, uh, bowing out in a stunning upset to the L.A. Kings, but uh, they. They were basically from that point on, it was a run of dominance from 81, 82 through the rest of the decade. Yeah, I think I'm sure I've always kind of, uh, I mean, you know, obviously it was a little bit before, I mean, uh, not necessarily before my time, but I certainly don't remember any of it. But I, I, I've i always looked at that 82 years kind of like, you know, the, the growing pains and they obviously learned the lessons from that because then it was what, uh, five of the 
in next the seven, Stanley Cup well, in yeah. So six, six of the next eight years in the Stanley Cup final. And if you even want to expand it more, from 1982-83 season through 1991-92, so, so a span of 10 years, they made the conference final eight times. Yeah, which is, you know, pretty incredible. I mean, the the you, if especially if you look back since then, what, two appearances in the conference finals, I think? So, I mean, it just shows you, uh, uh, yeah. Edmonton was spoiled back then. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, and even though, I mean, you obviously now working with uh, the Elks, uh, that's a, that was a pretty special time for not just Oilers fans, but Edmonton sports fans in general. They were treated to a lot of championships from about, let's say, the late 70s through to the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I think uh, five great cups um in a row uh and then a couple more in the 80s and yeah i guess just off the top of my head i think there was between the late 70s and up till the Oilers win in 1990 i think there must have been a combination of 11 or 12 championships in the city so like basically an average of one per year so yeah yeah, not bad not bad just just off the top of my head like you said they won the five in a row 78 79 80 81 82 and then i believe they also won 87 and 93 yeah that's right yeah you got it and in 89 they were the the heavy favorites i think that was the year that they Set the CFL that was, record. That was your, for, yeah, set the CFL record for wins. Uh, Saskatchewan upset them in yeah. the West final. It was and a pretty, I don't remember if Saskatchewan, I don't think they won the Grey Cup. They year. did. They did. Oh, they did? Uh, okay. That was uh, only their second Grey Cup in history. And it was a, it, it's considered one of the, the greatest Grey Cup games ever. They beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And, That's right. uh, and then. And then it was, I think, what, not until about 2013 or so when they won again, 2014? They did. They did win in 2013 at home. 2007 was the next one. Um, but And then they won uh, their, their fourth championship in 2013. They were, uh, that, that one, of course, being in Regina, making it extra special. But funny enough, when the Riders won the Grey Cup on uh, November 26th, 1989, that was actually the day I was christened. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah, I was... I was christened that morning at the church, and then the the riders won the Grey Cup that evening. So pretty pretty memorable day memorable day for my family, at least anyway. Um, so yeah, that's very cool. And, uh, did did you like? Did your family take you to a? a did you have like a christening slash Grey Cup party afterwards? Or what? <laughs> no, uh, I I've heard the story a bunch of times that we were over at my uh, my nana's house that day. My dad was. Um, putting in new flooring in her bathroom or something like that during the day, just leading up to the big game. So we were all just kind of over at her house, but uh, yeah, for, for my family, especially like my, my dad and uncle who were, and great uncle who were there, they were all big rough rider fans, of course. So yeah, pretty, uh, pretty memorable day overall. That's awesome. Um, And, you know, just going back to uh, the, the Oilers now, and, you know, most of the individual and club records set during the 1980s are unbreakable. But this year's Oilers squad accomplished something on Saturday that even the Gretzky-led teams never did. With a 2-1 overtime victory against the Montreal Canadiens on Hockey Night in Canada, the Edmonton Oilers broke the franchise record for the longest winning streak at 10 games. Brian, first off, do you find it surprising that even those dynasty teams during the 1980s and early 90s, never managed to win eight straight games. And secondly, 
if someone would have told you back in November when the Oilers were 2-9-1 and and at the bottom of the league that over the next two months they would have separate 10-game and 8-game winning streaks, would you have believed them? No, no, I would never. I, you know, I probably thought there was a... Actually, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, when, when the coaching change came down, I wasn't... At, at first, I was not a big fan of that move, and I didn't think it was the right thing to go. And I... I wasn't sure where this team was going to end up, but so, I mean, it's quite remarkable. They're at 18 and three in the last 21 games, I believe. Right. It's just, it's like, yeah, this is, this is, this is all time great streaks, not just, uh, not just in Oilers history, but in NHL history. But, um, to get back to your first part of your question there, it doesn't really surprise me that, um, that the Gretzky or the, 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 eighties teams didn't do it because, um, I think, and this is not to, at all to take away from anything that the team has accomplished right now because it's absolutely spectacular what they've done. But it's uh, every it's easier to have winning streaks these days when every game must have a winner. Um, back then, of course, like I, you know, I I have to look it up, but I I, I think the Oilers probably had a longer undefeated streak. Yeah, they uh, did. I think to start ties. the eighty four eighty five season, I believe. Yeah. So, you know, like when 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 the game went end in a tie back then, of course, now that game is going to shoot or someone's going to have to win. Um, and obviously the Oilers have, I mean, just in this last 10 game stretch, I think what they've won, one in a shootout and two in overtime. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, in overtime now is much more suited to produce a winner as well with the three on three, whereas before in the past, I mean, it was. Uh, you know, just it was just like the, any any other part of the game where five on five. So. Um, so yeah, so like I said, again, it does, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all to discredit what this team has done because it's an amazing accomplishment, but I, I always kind of think of it that way that this, you know, it's, it's just, uh, um, the back, back then I, I almost compare like what would be like a, an undefeated streak compared to a winning streak now. Right. And I just looked it up. So to start the 1984-85 season, the Oilers were 12-0-3. So a 15-game unbeaten that's streak. Ins- I mean, that's absolutely like, the- <laughs> think about that. And think, you know, yeah. think, and, and of course, who knows, right? If, if they did have shootouts back then with the, I, I've got, I got to think this team would be pretty good or that team. I don't would be think they would make shootouts. it to any shootouts, to be honest. Can you imagine three on three overtime, Gretzky, Curry, and Paul Coffey? I just. Yes, game <laughs> over. Yeah, I think Pretty that much, they, right? they yeah. I mean, Gretzky's point totals would be even higher. I can't imagine they would ever lose an overtime game as, as long as they had possession. Those three with that much open ice and the creativity that was displayed on a nightly basis back in the 1980s, that would have been something to watch. And I really wish that uh, we would have seen that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 kind of fun to, to imagine what it would have been like to see those, uh, you know, and, and and you can toss any number of any other other guys in there too. Like I would, uh, I would have loved to see Glenn Anderson in that in that kind of a situation. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, a second line of Messi and Anderson with their speed. I mean, if if Gretzky and Curry didn't finish it within the first thirty seconds of overtime, you'd probably see those two next out over the boards and yeah it would uh, it would have been just waves on wave of talent that uh, would have been very tough for the opposition to stop it's actually kind of fun just to think about like um if you go let let you know say that the the three on three existed over the course of the the order's history and you know just go through each kind of five three or four or five year span and and, and look at like okay who would have been the ideal three 
three-man unit to send over the boards for overtime. Like, think about the, the late 90s teams, which, you you know, you could have had, uh, what, Wade Garrett and maybe Yanni Ninema. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of cool to think about. And also, just to give credit to the modern-day Oilers as well, now, these are overtime losses, so... Uh, these, it's still a point streak, but it's not like the the twelve zero and three where the Oilers three extra points were ties. But right. in in two thousand four, uh, they had a sixteen game point streak, and just this past season, if you include playoffs, the Oilers had a twenty one game point streak, going from uh, the last I guess it would be fifteen games of the regular season and six games against the L.A. Kings in the playoffs where they were 18-0-3. So, I mean, that, that's a pretty impressive run as well. And I, I'm sure if you go back further, like this this 1984-85 season where we said the Oilers started 12-0-3, they also won the final three games of the 84 Stanley Cup final. So if, if we want to include playoffs as well, it was 18 straight games without a loss. Right, and I'd be curious too what the, uh, how they closed out the previous regular season um what their what their what their regular season on the feed streak would be like because uh, i i have seen it's been interesting that um i have seen some uh uh like a lot a lot of places will just list like a single season record but often too you'll see like uh multi c or records that span over multiple seasons um so i mean that team could have who knows i wouldn't wouldn't be surprised they closed out the previous season with like you know four or five straight wins that wouldn't be out of the ordinary for them no, I'm just checking it right now, and they finished the season on a seven-game point streak. They had six wins and one loss. So if you're just oh, talking, if we if we take the Stanley Cup final and we're just talking regular season games, then it was eighteen zero and four. I think uh, it'd be a tw- oh no, I, I apologize. There's a loss and they're not a tie. They 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 lost uh so they finished the season on a six one and zero run, um but still one regulation loss in a span of twenty two games. Yeah, that's kind of good. That's but I mean that's the that's the mid eighties Oilers right like that's what you would expect from the eighty four slash eighty five kind of era. Yes. Yeah. No. For sure. And Brian, just bringing it back to the twenty three twenty four Oilers now. Uh, like we said, they had that terrible start to the season that obviously cost Jay Woodcroft his job. Uh, did you ever imagine that a 10-game and 8-game winning streak would be coming for this group in a matter of just two months? No, no. This um, this has been just an incredible run. Um, and it really, you know, it just it's it's almost like a, just like a complete 180 that... Uh, um, with this team from... Uh, and, and it coincides you know, almost exactly with the coaching chains too. And, you know, we can, I guess we can, that's a whole other topic of how much we want to get into crediting, you know, what, how, how big of a, an impact the coaching change has had and how much of it is just the players responding to that. But uh, yeah, I didn't see this coming. I mean, I, I didn't think they were going to continue to, to, you know, be stuck in last place or second, second to last in the NHL overall standings all year. But um, it was, you know, that the, there was not, um there was there there were times there when there was not a lot to you would look at to make you think that yeah they're just going to suddenly turn around and reel off a 18 and 3 stretch yeah 
And I mean, if you look at how Oilers fans were reacting on Twitter and just the, the community at large, I, I was seeing a lot of people saying this season is more disappointing than any of the decade of dark age seasons because the expectations were so high this year. I mean, the Oilers were widely considered Stanley Cup contenders, if not Stanley Cup favorites coming into the season. And for them to get off to such a terrible start, especially after showing up to training camp two weeks ahead and having all those captain skates together, you just figured they were going to hit the ground running. Eight of their first 12 games were against non-playoff teams from the year before. Everything was just lining up for them to have a great start. And they just fell flat on their face. And now here they are almost at the halfway point of the season now. And they're finally playing the type of hockey that we sort of expected them to have out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, it's. uh, It was it was 12 games or I guess. Right. And that's that's all it was. I mean, that's uh, not that's about what one uh, one seventh of the season or so. So, I mean, you know, it's the. If if you go back, to, this team has usually had um, actually traditionally sometimes had seems to happen around the holiday season, right? Where they go into these little yeah. December's always slumps. been a, a tough month for them, and and this year it was kind of the opposite. It was, uh, and you know, even when I've had Bruce McCurdy on my podcast in the past, and he's an Oilers historian, he said it's always been a thing for the Oilers. Even back during the '80s, they would have their December slump, but uh, I'm glad they were able to buck that trend this year and. Uh, actually start their winning streak because they needed it considering how bad their October and November was. Yeah. And now here they are. And, um, you know, if you just look at the, where they are in the standings, it's, it's quite remarkable. We're not even at the halfway point of the season yet. I mean, I guess technically the NHL is at the halfway point of the season, but the others haven't even played half their games yet. Well, no, cause they had two five day breaks in December alone. Yeah. So it, 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 it already feels like this has been like four seasons in one kind of right. But it's crazy to think that this isn't the schedule isn't even halfway over. So, I mean, I, I don't put anything. Um, I don't think there's anything you can really rule out about what this team can accomplish yet. There's still 40, I guess, what, 43 games still to go. Yeah, that's uh, they, 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 they can they can do a lot. And, and Brian, we always hear the sort of the idea that it. 80% or 75% of the teams that are in the playoffs on American Thanksgiving end up making the playoffs. Do you find it kind of ironic that the Oilers ended up turning their season around with that 5 nothing win over the Washington Capitals on American Thanksgiving? Because at that point, they were still well out of the playoffs. But that's sort of that was the point where everything got back on track. Yeah, right. That's where it starts the uh, the 18 and three stretch, I think. Um, right. Yeah, I guess it's kind of poetic. Um, it's I, I kind of actually look, I think uh, the turning point of the season you could almost look at in the, and and this is kind of like, this is kind of an obscure thing, but the uh, although it did get a lot of play on social media, the, the previous game in, so the night before U.S. Thanksgiving when they're in Carolina, and there's this shot of McDavid on the bench just looking like completely distraught. Yeah. And uh, Drysaddle is—I think you know what I'm talking about, right? There's I do. Drysaddle sitting next to him and kind of like just gives him a little tap, like you know what, it's going to be all good. We're going to get through. And and McDavid just looks like you know he just looks like his he's lost his dog or something, right? Like you can tell you can tell how much this is this like what the Oilers had been going through was was weighing on him. It was just like it was, and but I think 
I think it's, it's almost like in that moment, it's just like they decided like dry saddle was like, you know what? We kind of, you know what? I got you. We got each other. And you know what? Enough of this. <laughs> right. And, and, and since then, I mean, it's been, it's just been unbelievable. So I think, uh, it's, it's kind of like a little trivial random thing, but I just remember looking at that, that night. And I think uh, it was interesting to see how people reacted to what, to that scene. Cause some people were like, uh, there's some people kind of being critical of McDavid for, you know, I think, you know, there's almost like saying like he's crying on the bench and stuff like this. And I just looked at it like, you know what, this team has been through a lot and as the captain of the team, he's probably weighed, it's weighed on him more than anything. And this is just like, this is just the, somebody who is so engaged and wants to succeed so badly. And it's so important to him. You're just seeing that raw emotion come out right now. Well, I mean, they're, Dry Seidel probably is a little bit more um, expressive about his, you know, feelings. I mean, he even said that in that Mark Spector's article that sometimes, you know, his body language might give off uh, the wrong impression at times or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that outside of Edmonton, a lot of, you know, non-Oilers fans like to make a lot out of um, McDavid's reaction to things on the bench and come to their own conclusions about uh, whether he's happy or not about his time here. That started right back from when the Oilers won the draft lottery in 2015. I just find it kind of funny that the the the, the people who don't support the Oilers, especially out East, they tend to really focus on that any time that he looks angry or upset. But there's never that same uh, discussion about uh, his facial reactions when he's looks over the moon excited after a big goal by a teammate or an Oilers win. And um, I think, you know, he just wants to win so badly. And it's like you said, they're both intense competitors. They want to win as much as anyone. Uh, Hockey is their life. And, you know, they just pour everything they have into this team. And to see the team get off to the horrible start that they had this year, of course they're going to look visibly frustrated. And I think it also... You have to remember that McDavid was playing hurt through a large chunk of the the early part of the season, so that limited his effectiveness. And I don't care what team you are around the league, if your best player is out of the lineup or not playing at his full capabilities, it's going to affect the whole team. Uh, no, you're absolutely right, and I you know I don't think there's anything wrong with looking angry or upset or like, you know, I, I thought, I really thought that was a really poignant moment with those two on the bench and you could just see it just, it um, all turned it was, around. I, after I think that. it was almost was... a cathartic, a cathartic moment for them. And it's just like, I, I don't, like I say, I, I probably make a bit more, a bit more out of that than I should, but I, I don't think it's a coincidence that from that moment on, it's just like this team has turned it all around. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. I just, you know, they are the leaders of this team and they probably take a lot of it on themselves to get this group to where they want to be. We've, you know, we've heard them speak countless times over the years about, you know, what winning in Edmonton would mean to them, how how much they want to win, how much they want to be here. And um, I, like I said earlier, because of the expectations for this season, it probably just felt like we need to change something in a hurry because, uh, if, if we don't get to the playoffs, we can't win that Stanley Cup that, you know, we're 
expected by many uh, to get to this year. So now they're back on track and uh, it looks like they're just going to continue to head in the right direction. But before we talk more about the streak, I just want to go back to 2001 when the Oilers actually set the record of nine straight wins. And there were a couple times during that era where the Oilers went on impressive late season runs to either sneak into the playoffs or just miss. And I know you have a real fondness for those Oiler teams from the late 90s and early 2000s. That was, you know, when I was really starting to follow the Oilers a lot. And I just want to know, uh, what memories do you have from that nine-game winning streak 23 years ago? Oh, man, I have I have so many. Like, I can actually remember some of those games and, like, where I was uh, listening. I think that was my first or second year out of high school. So, um, yeah, I got... I. I I could uh, I, I absolutely remember the 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 game that broke the record in Tampa Bay. Um the 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 Eric the Brewer scored wins. the winner, right? Eric Brewer scored the winner in overtime. Uh, the Oilers were up 3 nothing at one in the first period in that game. And um Tampa came all the way back, made it 3-3, then Oilers went ahead 4-3, then Tampa forced overtime and then, and then Brewer got to be the hero. Um but yeah, there's there's so many little things in that streak that, that really make up that are part of a larger Oilers story. Like I think Tommy Salo had a stretch where he went like two and a half or three games without giving up a goal. And that's the longest or maybe at, uh, at, yeah, I think it maybe it might've been surpassed since, but it was at that point in time, the longest shutout streak by an Oilers goalie. Um, and the crazy thing is too, when that streak started, they were in, Right, they were like just floating right around the playoff cut line. When the streak ended, they were just floating right around the playoff cut line too. Like that, it was it was that challenging to make the playoffs in in 2000, 2001 in the West because there were there were a lot of really uh, young upstart teams that year that were they were pressing to get in at the end. I think uh, L.A., uh, Phoenix, now Arizona, um, was in the race and. Uh, you know the Oilers needed to do that just to just to get into the playoffs, and that was a uh, that, that that was that was a great team. That was that was a really fun team. That was Mike Conry's first year. Um, Anson Carter had been traded for Bill Guerin. He was really starting to hit his stride on the line with uh, with Doug Waite. Um, of course, Ryan Smith was a big part of that, and uh, that was that was Brewers' first year, I believe, with the team, and that was the year before he'd get named to the Olympic team in 2002. So he yeah. was really starting to come into his own too. Uh, Ninema and Hammerlick were still around, you know, and then you had, you had the crew of uh, the MGM crew, right? Marshawn Greer, Murray, uh, Moreau was on there. Um, what a George, the rock, like what a crew. Actually, Eric Brewer also scored a goal in the, the first game of that Olympics for Canada and that five, two loss to Sweden. I still remember that goal. Um, and it was great to see him make the team. I, I don't think that I thought that he was going to get there eventually, but I mean, it turned out to be a pretty good trade with the Oilers in 2000, uh, picking him up for, I believe, Hammerlick. Yeah, no, well, that was an amazing trade. I think Brewer's one of the more underrated defensemen uh, that is, pl- or underappreciated defensemen that has played in the Oilers uh, in the last, you know, I guess 20 to 25 years. Um, I thought he completely deserved to be on that Olympic team. I know some people will probably say it was the Oilers connections that got him there. Maybe so, but he had a whale of a tournament when he was there too. Like that, he was perfectly suited for the role he played on that team. 
for sure. And I actually thought he was going to be a 10-year oiler or more. But, of course, when the, the Chris Pronger trade happened, uh, it makes sense that that's the, the defenseman they would want back in the deal mm-hmm. when you're giving up arguably the best or second best defenseman in the league. Uh, you're you're going to have to give up your top uh, young defender as well. But uh, that trade ultimately worked out pretty well for Edmonton. So I would still do it again. Yeah, well, I guess you can't argue with the result of getting to within uh, one game of the Stanley Cup. But uh, yeah, no, Brewer was Brewer was a great oiler. He was he he was part of that uh, part big part of that um, that crew there from 2000, 2001, two three that uh, you know they they were uh, they 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 weren't going to be contending for a Stanley Cup, but man, they would always get into the, do everything they could to get into the playoffs and then uh, you know give Dallas hell once they got there. Yeah, and you know, I didn't plan on asking this, but it just kind of sparked a, um, a question in my head. Like, if you think back to the Heritage Classic, which I went to in late October, an awesome event, by the way, put on by the Oilers at Commonwealth Stadium. Uh, one of the most memorable games I've ever been to. I've, I'm now 2-0 and in outdoor games that, that the Oilers have uh, uh, played in. Uh, but I was the one thing that I think was missing from that weekend was an alumni game. And... You know, there was definitely an appetite for it for the fans. I guess that the organization maybe was concerned about the ice quality playing two games in a short period of time. But I really think that this was a great opportunity to have players from a new generation of Oilers alumni instead of going back to all the 80s greats, which, I mean, I love to see. When I was in, in Winnipeg in 2016 and saw the Oilers alumni up against the Jets alumni, uh, getting to see Gretzky for probably the first and only time in my life uh, play in a game was a, a something I'll never forget, as well as you know all the other legends. But I thought this was going to be a time when we were going to see some of those late 90s, 2000s players like an Eric Brewer there. So that would have been something that I, I really wish they would have done. And if they end up having another alumni game in the next year or two or however long they decide to put the Oilers back in one, I really hope that they do that next time. Yeah, I do too. I thought that was a huge disappointment that they didn't do it. Um, you know, uh, and I, I really, I can't speak to necessarily the reasons why they decided not to, but uh, I think that was a bit, a big letdown and a kind of a missed opportunity as well. It would have just made the whole weekend. I mean, if you would have had the alumni game on the Saturday afternoon and then the regular season game on the Sunday afternoon, it just would have worked out great. And maybe even if you want to expand it, I don't know if the NHL would be willing to allow this, but if they would have been, let's say, make it a full weekend of Battle of Alberta, have the Oil Kings versus the Hitmen on the Friday night and then have, you know, three games in three days there. I just think they could have turned it into an even bigger event than it ended up being. Yeah, I thought they could have done something with, like, say, with the alumni game, maybe paired it up with, um, with as you mentioned, a WHL game. Or, you know, there's there's also a, a tremendous rivalry between uh, University of Calgary and University of Alberta hockey teams. For um, sure. Which, you know, that they'd have to work, obviously, with Canada West to align those schedules, which would be probably pretty difficult. But that would be pretty cool to see out there, too. But in, anyway, but yeah, I... I thought they could have done it like like the day before, and that would have, and you know, maybe had set it at a more for it was, you know, having having to see having gone to the game, how expensive those ticket prices were. They, I think, I think if you could have done something the previous day to make it a little bit more affordable for people who might not have been able to to afford to get into the big game on the Sunday, 
Um, I thought that would have been, uh, you know, really cool. And you could have done something too, where, you know, you make packs available too, where people want to get something to, to, for both games and you get tickets for both games, but this would have been, uh, right. been something else. Um, yeah. So I was kind of, you know, uh, I was kind of surprised they didn't, that didn't happen. And, um, you know, I'm with you when, whenever you are host a game like this again, or are involved in the game like this again, uh, with say somebody else's hosting, I, I sure hope we do get to see an alumni team. For sure. And just before we move on from this, uh, if you could pick one opponent and venue for the Oilers to play in their next alumni or next outdoor game or stadium series game, whichever you want to call it, uh, who would you have them play and where would it be? Mm, that's a great question. So it's obviously not going to be in Edmonton. Yeah, just to kind of make it more fun to pick like a different spot. I have one in mind that I'll tell you after. You know, it'd be kind of cool. This will be going way out there. I, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Toronto Blue Jays fan. Uh, oh, I think are you going to steal my idea? Play the Leafs in 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 uh, Rogers Center. I I was literally about to say that. That is exactly is that, the, picked, that was exactly two? what I that was the team I wanted them to play and the venue. I said put it in Rogers Center. Have it there, 52,000 fans pack the place. I just think it would be a great atmosphere. Oilers oh, versus Leeds, McDavid versus Matthews. Uh, I, just, I can't think of a, a better one that they could do than that. No, no, I think that would be, I mean, you know, just just, just the, the hype and the excitement and, and two incredibly passionate fan bases and obviously, you know, just tremendously skilled players on either side and uh, there's also a bunch of gta yeah. kids on the oilers most notably of course mcdavid you know playing in his hometown against the leafs i i i don't think that other than another one against the flames that they could drop a, a better opponent and and place to play the game than that no and i think i think you know given the, i think that's something too that the nhl would probably like to do with uh, you know just given the, the, all the superstars Oh yeah, I mean, you could market it so well with McDavid yeah. versus Matthews alone, but uh, the fact yeah. that both teams are, uh, you know, very strong teams, uh, and you know that they don't get to play each other that often, only two times a year. Of course, we're going to see these teams match up tomorrow night uh, at Rogers Place, but I just it would be uh, great uh, to see. I think these teams, you could make it a national game, do it on Hockey Night in Canada, even. Uh, it would be a, a pretty exciting thing for hockey fans in general to see i think even if you weren't a fan of one of the two teams yeah and i think i know like i think part of the the charm of these games to to some people is is the outdoor aspect and i think that yeah. was kind of novel at first but i mean we've seen a lot of that now i actually wouldn't mind seeing it in i think it would be more unique now to see like i've actually seen a lot of games played outdoors in a stadium but how many games have we seen played in an indoor stadium that not would many. Be a whole other different it, trip. So, like they did it in Vancouver back in 2014. Um, I, I do think the fact that playing it outside makes it a little more special. But you're right; most of the the games have been outside, and maybe this is more of a regional event. Like I don't know how much, um, you know, two teams like say Philadelphia and New York playing um, has to western canada or how much you know the oilers and flames playing has to the the other side of the united states but uh just in general you know these games are special uh even if some people think they're overdone the the local community that gets to have it in their city uh, i think really appreciates it but yeah the more the more star power you can get in it the better and i look at the chicago blackhawks you know during their 
dominant years you know of course Chicago being a big city too they seem to play in an outdoor game almost every year and what an opportunity now with Connor McDavid I would be putting him in at least one outdoor game every season uh this is the second one he's played in now and you know maybe the fact that he plays in uh, a Canadian market makes it a little less chance of that happening but still I would think that that's something if the if the NHL really wanted to grow the game and, and make sure that they advertise their biggest star in, in the U.S., that uh, they would try and get him in one of these as much as possible. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. All right, uh, let's talk about Saturday night's game now. And after equaling the franchise record for the second time in less than 12 months, the Oilers look to make history at the Bell Centre. They were playing the most legendary team in NHL history on Hockey Night in Canada, and the game also landed on Connor McDavid's 27th birthday. And fittingly, after getting booed by the fans in Montreal for most of the night, McDavid (laughs) set up the game-winning goal in overtime to not only secure the first 10-game winning streak in franchise history, but also pass Glenn Anderson for fourth on the Oilers' all-time points list with 907. Brian, other than McDavid scoring the goal himself, I'm not sure that anyone could have scripted a better ending to that hockey game. No, that whole game was awesome. I mean, for a, for a 2-1 score, you know, and only two goals scored in regulation, I mean, there were so many great chances and just great action both the ice. I thought it was hilarious with uh, with the Montreal fans booing McDavid and, like, they were just really getting... What an atmosphere, man. It was just... Yeah. And then, you know, you're right, like, the... Uh, uh, the Oilers winning it with with Bouchard uh, scoring on one of his patented bombs there at the end. Um, just 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 fun. Everything about that game was fun, you know. And of course, if you're an Oilers fan, you got to be happy without ending. Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, they gave up that one early, but the Oilers really outchanced the Habs for most of the night. And if it wasn't for Sam Montebo and that, yeah, I think that game, game. Yeah, I mean, they, the Oilers had over 40 shots. That game could have easily been four one. Yeah, I think over the shots, well, I think they had 21 or 22 in the third alone. Um, they, they finished with 41 shots, but yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that they're going to put that one away with how many chances they were getting, but they just couldn't seem to sneak one by. And, you know, credit to the Habs, they, they're going up against a, a pretty potent offensive team, and uh, they were able to shut them down. But Montebo is uh, has had a pretty solid year. I mean, we've even heard his name mentioned in uh potential trade rumors to the Oilers, even though he signed that three-year extension with the Habs uh, about a month ago. But still, um, you know, we, whenever he's been shown in highlights, I've I've followed and it looks like he's been having a pretty strong year. We've seen him, uh, I think he stood on his head against the Rangers recently and uh, locked down a win there. So you can see that he can go up against these top teams and, you know, give his team a fighting chance. Yeah, no, I I did I just thought everything about that game was great, you know, and especially like that's about as fun as a two one game could be. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, and you know, while the Oilers failed to put the game away with three power play opportunities in the third period, they got that four on three advantage in overtime, and you just had the feeling that they were finally going to break through and convert it, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, Louis DeBrusque on the broadcast. Right? I don't know if you caught that, but when they got the power play at the end of regulation. Um, he was, he, he started, uh, he was referring back to a conversation he'd had with, uh, Glenn Goldson earlier in the day saying that, yeah, the player probably has been struggling during this, you know, the last several games, but I think when the time comes 
and they need that goal, they're going to deliver. And sure enough, they did. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been it's funny. And one of the things, well, there's a number of things that impressed me about this win streak. And it, it, but the overarching theme to it is that the Oilers are winning in ways they haven't really won before. And they're they're the things that they would have relied on to succeed before they haven't necessarily needed to go on this win streak. And one of those things is the power play. And it's it's crazy to think that, you know, the, the power play only produced uh, five goals over the streak. Um, the, yeah, weren't they something six, like four for 30 coming into the game? Yeah, four for 29 coming into the game. They went one for five, uh, like six games of these 10 games. They didn't even score a power play goal. I mean, this is the kind of stuff like if I, you know, if you go back, say, a year ago and I would have just shown you that stat and said in a 10 game stretch, the others have gone uh, four for 29 on the power play. You probably would have thought, oh, boy, well, we'd be lucky to be 500 and over this stretch. Right. But I think the Oilers the, set a franchise record last year for most consecutive games with a power play goal scored. They, they did. And then that, you know, and, and they needed, which that makes sense because right? they had the best power play in NHL history last year. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they, they needed that to, um, I mean, the, they, the, the, like that, uh, that nine game win or sorry. Yeah. The nine game win streak last year. And like you were mentioning the incredible run at the end of the season. I mean, the power play was a big part of that. I, I think it's very encouraging to see that they can have such incredible success without the power play having to step up and, and, you know, bail them out every night. And, and when the time came to deliver in the biggest moment with the record on the line, the power play clicked. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I was wondering if uh, McDavid was going to be able to keep his point streak going. And I think, like I said, it ties in so nicely that um, he has his 10 game point streak and the, the Habs have, or sorry, and the, the Oilers got their 10 game win streak against the Habs. And uh, he also, it's also his, sorry, 14th uh, double digit point streak in NHL or in his career, which is the third most in NHL history behind only Wayne Gretzky and Mary Lemieux. I believe he tied Guy Lafleur with his uh, his 14th career 10-game uh, point streak. So a pretty impressive way to cap off that victory. Yeah, the numbers, there were so many fun stats coming out of that game, and uh, that was definitely one of them. Yeah, and you just know that when he's in those big moments, that that's the type of games that he rises to the occasion. Like, I even think back to last month, there were a couple weak opponents they played, like the Ducks and the Sharks, and uh, he didn't end up having a big point night. He had one assist in both games. And then he plays a team like the Flyers, who are one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference this year, and he puts up five points against them. So sometimes I think that uh, just because the Oilers are going up against a, a bottom feeder doesn't always mean that Connor is going to crush them that night. But when he gets the opportunity to play in an important game, that's sometimes where we see him rise to the occasion and have his best games. Yeah, I mean, I think he's doing what he needs to do to, um, to for this team to succeed. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because I know you and I have talked about a lot about as we've watched his uh, him racking up the points here over the last yeah. while and, and, and kind of projected, OK, when when might he hit this milestone and what, when he might he get, you know, with the with the 900 points and then when he might pass Anderson. And I think we were looking and kind of thinking like, OK. Here's this game against San Jose. Well, that might be good for a three or four point night. And then Anaheim, a three or four point night. And it's kind of hasn't gone that way. But you know what? That's OK. Um, I, 
him, him and Dreisaitl are probably going to have, especially Dreisaitl, have significantly less points than they did last year, really over the last few years. But what's the most important thing? They've won 10 in a row. So whether yeah. McDavid has gotten two points in those games or 44 points, it's, you know, I mean, I think, and, and I think that's all that matters to them too. And at the same time, McDavid still has 16 points during this 10-game point streak, which is a 131-point pace over a full 82-game schedule. So yeah, his numbers are still elite, even if he hasn't had as many of those, you know, highlight reel type of classic McDavid nights. No, no, I mean, he hasn't he hasn't racked up the points, but I, I don't think that means that he's he's playing any less effectively or impacting the game any less. Um, I might argue it's even more. Uh, I just think that this this team has got it figured out. And I, you know, maybe it means playing a little less fire wagon hockey than they have in the past. And, and that might mean a few less goals here and there. Yeah. But like just I mean. You you look at how they're getting it done right now. They're they can. Uh, when was the last time you could confidently say that this team can win two one games consistently, three two games consistently? I I don't yeah. know when that is. And and you look at this this. Uh, yeah, I actually got a stat for you here. This they they've won. Um, this has tied the, their current streak. Well, their their last four games they've won when scoring three goals or less. And they have not that that's ties the longest in franchise history. They they've wow. never won more than four games in a row when in each of those games they scored three goals or less. So I mean that shows you that this team is finding new and different ways to win, and it doesn't have to be a shootout every night. And I just find that incredibly encouraging. Right. And and just before I forget, I was gonna say during that first eight game winning streak, that's when McDavid actually really was racking up the the huge point totals and even coming into tonight's uh, game against the Leafs he has a 13 game home point streak going where he has 30 points so that's a 2.31 points per game average during that run um but yeah like you said it kind of ties into my next question that I had for you as well as I was going to say you know their last three wins have all been one goal games and uh, do you see this as more of a positive that the Oilers are showing they can consistently win these tight games or is it concerning to you that the offense hasn't been as effective recently yeah no it's it's to me also it's really not concerning to me at all because they've they've delivered when they've had to um They've I I don't think that I mean, you know, they, they've still been getting lots of shots, creating lots of opportunities. Uh, I think they've run into some teams that have, you know, had had their goalies have had have very good nights and teams that have played good defense and are, are figuring out ways to kind of minimize the others chances. And the others have just responded. They've what I've really loved is how they've they've stuck with it and haven't, you know, sort of deviated from their game plan and, and maybe taken risks that could end them you know, biting them in the end. Um, if you look, I mean, obviously you look in the game in Montreal, they they went into the third period trailing, but there was never a sign of panic. And sure enough, they got the tying goal and then were able to close it out in overtime. Um, I'm drawing a blank here. There was another game too where they went in this streak where they went into the third period also trailing. Uh, well, they, they did it against uh, back-to-back games against the Devils and the Rangers. Right, right. The, uh, recently, though, we, um, just in like the last two or three games. Um, uh, they were trailing here. against Chicago in the first period, but they came back and, it was, and won now. Right. Oh, uh, Re- uh, Red Wings. Red Wings. Uh, they, they, it was a 0-0 game going into the third period. Wings scored with about 
11 minutes to go, I want to say. And then the Oilers ended up uh, tying it and taking the lead before winning it in overtime. Right. So I, you know, I think it's just, it's, I, I, I like the, um, the poise and composure this team is, is showing and it, it might not be quite as exciting. You know, you like to see them kind of go, kind of, kind of, kind of break out sometimes and maybe take some chances. But um, this, this is what it takes to win a Stanley Cup. And yeah. this team is for the first time in the McDavid era. I think you can truly say that they, they're, they're showing it. And it's, I think it's just, it's, it's taken a maturity to get to this point. Um, I mean, you, you look at Chris Knobloch too, and you've heard um, Oilers players talk about this in interviews recently, how calm he is behind the bench. And just, mm-hmm. he, I think that maybe some of that, you know, composure is rubbing off on, on the rest of the players too. That like, Hey, we're, we're not out of this. And I mean, they had that somewhat with the Jay Woodcroft uh, teams as well too. Like, uh, they were never really out of a game because they were always able to have the offense to outscore their problems and get back into a game if they were trailing. But the fact that they aren't as reliant of needing to load up McDavid and Dryside on a line together and, you know, play their huge minutes. You look at some of these games, uh, I mean, perhaps maybe that's even a reason why McDavid didn't have as many big point nights against some of these weaker teams is because they've been able to roll four that's, lines and not exactly have to have his minutes up, right? That's exactly it. And that kind of comes back around to what I was saying. Like the, these guys are probably not going to put up points like they have in the last years. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. That, that just means that this team is figuring out and refining it. And, and, you know, everyone knows their role and exactly what they need to do to, for this team to be its most successful. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, I just find it really encouraging. I just love how they, you know, in Montreal, I think it's the, it's the perfect uh, example of really in a nutshell of, of what this team is doing. You know, they got scored on. Uh, they gave up a goal two minutes under two minutes into the game. Um, but there was just no they they never let the, the Montreal get that second goal. They never kind of deviated from anything that would put themselves at risk. Um, and I really think and, and you're right. A lot of it is coincided with when Knobloch has come on. But I think it's just it's just a really a maturity of all these players, you know, kind of really kind of getting to this point. We're just kind of starting to see it realize itself now. And maybe it's a couple of years later than, you know, we would have hoped, but uh, this is it. This is what championship teams look yeah. like. And I know that there are still questions about the Oilers depth, but I don't remember a time in the McDavid era where they've been able to roll four lines this consistently. And, you know, let's hope that reducing McDavid and Dreisaitl's minutes a bit here will pay off come playoff time when they're maybe a little more fresh instead of having to play 23, 24, even 25 minutes a night some games. And, you know, another thing too, and I, you know, I just, just anecdotally speaking, I'm not sure if they're really the case, but I think that the, we're seeing the lines being thrown in the blender a lot less with Knobloch. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and I, I mean, that that sort of goes back to my point that I said before about McDavid and Dreisaitl, too. Uh, you know, if as as good of a coach as uh, Woodcroft was for the, the Oilers, and, you know, some people still question the change, although, um, I mean, I think that this move probably would have been made eventually anyway because Jeff Jackson was likely going to want to bring in his own guy, and he has a longstanding relationship with Chris Knobloch going back to when uh, McDavid was still in Erie and... Uh, that was uh, Jeff Jackson was his agent at the time. So I could see that that was probably going to be a, a move that happened at some point. 
But, you know, because of the Oilers terrible start to the season, it sort of just expedited the process. Um, but yeah, we're, we're sort of not seeing them go back to that, uh, loading up the, the nuclear option as quickly. Like if the Oilers ever fell behind two, nothing in a game, uh, you could almost bet that Woodcroft was going to be putting them mm-hmm. on a line together and, you know, just so many in-game changes. And, and let's just hope that by letting these players play together more consistently and let these lines build chemistry that over the course of a full season, they know that these are going to be their consistent line mates. You get to feel a certain comfortability there. And when the season does get into the most important time that they're ready for it and and that they won't be, you know, seeing any like drastic line changes come playoff time or, you know, as they go deeper on a run. Yeah. No, I mean, I honestly think we're already starting to see the benefits of that consistency already. Um, so you can imagine, you know, what it's going to look like uh, 43 games from now when the playoffs yeah, start. Exactly. Uh, and Brian, when you look at the Oilers upcoming schedule, how long do you think they can keep this winning streak going? I wouldn't be surprised. This goes like this is going to sound crazy. Another five or six games. Like, I'm honestly, like with the way this team is playing right now, there's not a time when I look at the opponent or the given the given on any given night and be like, yeah, the Oilers can't win this game. I mean, I honestly am thinking like every night that they're going to win. Like, that's just how this team feels. And, and they're not. Eventually, this is going to end. And it may, be, it may be against the Leafs or maybe, you know, another two weeks yet. But Well, their yeah, next I mean, two games are their two toughest games of the month. Yeah, who's, uh, refresh my memory, who's after so the they, Leafs? So they've got Seattle after the Leafs. And even though Seattle is behind the Oilers in the standings, they're 9-0-1 in their last 10 games and have sort of, when people thought they were dead in the water of, you know, really emerged as a team that's going to be fighting for a wild card spot again. And so if, if they get by the leaps, then I'm starting to feel pretty confident that they're going to run the table in January, because like we said, Seattle will be a tougher opponent, but you're still on home ice. You have last change. The Oilers do normally beat the Kraken over the past two years. I, I think they've only, well, I, I guess since they came into the league, I think the Kraken have only beat them twice. They beat them once in Seattle. And then last year, the Oilers had a lead and blew it on home against the Kraken one game right around this time last January. So, uh, but normally it's a team that the Oilers have been able to handle. So, and then if they get by that game, hockey night in Canada at the Saddle Dome this Saturday, it's the fourth straight hockey night in Canada game that the Oilers have played. They've won the past three in LA against Ottawa and then in Montreal and it also gives them a chance to break the franchise record for longest road winning streak, which they also tied uh, against the Habs on Saturday. So that's some added incentive to go into your biggest rivals building and break another franchise winning streak. So I think if they do get by uh, Toronto and, and Seattle, then they'll be even extra motivated to keep it rolling in Calgary. Yeah, the, the Seattle game is one that I'm kind of excited to see, too, because, I mean, they've been playing some amazing hockey lately. I know they they lost uh, on Monday, I think, uh, which brought their streak to an end. But, I mean, they're they're red hot, too, and, and you know, they're pushing to, to get in that wild card mix as well. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, but honestly, any anytime the owners go on the ice right now, I, I think they're going to win. For sure. And then next week, they'll have Columbus, who's at the bottom of the league, Chicago, who are also at the bottom and without Bedard, and then Nashville, who are in the wild card mix, but it's a team that the Oilers have historically done very well against. So, uh, I mean, yeah, there is 
a real possibility that the Oilers could go 12-0 and this month. And that's going to be another stat that uh, we might have to look up. You're obviously really good at finding these out if the Oilers have ever swept a month before. So uh, you'll have to maybe see if you could track that. I, I guess we did look up uh, that 12-0-3 start. I'd, I'd have to see if any of the ties were in there, but maybe October 84 was the only other time it was done. If if uh, if it starts getting close, I will I will start doing the digging. Okay, yeah, I don't want to start your research too soon here. Yeah, I don't. But, I, uh, <laughs> we got a ways to go yet, but yeah, if we get to like the whatever the the twenty fifth and it's still they're still undefeated, then absolutely I'll yeah. uh, I'll start breaking open the uh, the old record books and dusting them off and see what we can find. For sure, and it's going to be an intense atmosphere against the the Leafs tomorrow night. So um, I mean, that's one that they get fired up for. Uh, I'm glad Edmonton was able to win that game. Uh, against the the Leafs last season when they they came to town and it was a I remember Clem Costin scoring a big goal that game too and uh, McDavid I think that was the game when he had his fifth straight multi goal game which uh, was one short of the NHL record for uh, most consecutive multi goal games that was set like 101 years ago or something like that it, it went back to like 1921 so it would have been cool to see him get that next one I, I was actually at that game <laughs> for our heavy hockey showdown we had in Edmonton it was against the Jets uh, he ended up with three assists though so still a pretty good night for McDavid yeah well he's uh historically I think he's done pretty good against the Leafs hasn't he yeah I mean he had a five-point game against them as a rookie back in 2016 i seem to remember like during the the pandemic year when they play like three in a row against each other or whatever like he had some big nights against the Leafs. yeah i mean he's he's scored a couple memorable end-to-end goals against them for sure like obviously it's uh the leafs have the the edge head-to-head uh in the matthews mcdavid sort of era but uh the, the ones that the oilers have won have been pretty memorable victories for sure yeah, no, it's always, it's always when those two teams get together, it's all, and the two fan bases get together too, it's always a lot of fun. And I, yeah. you know, I, uh, the, the game uh, tonight is going to be something to be excited about. And uh, thanks to the Oilers' 10 game winning streak, as well as the Vegas Golden Knights and the Los Angeles Kings dropping below 500 in their last 10 games, the Oilers are now within striking distance of a top three spot in the Pacific Division. Brian, do you think Edmonton can still? track down one of or both of Vegas and LA and secure home ice in the first round of the playoffs for the fifth consecutive season? I do think they will track down both of them. I, I do. Um, and it's crazy to think this. I mean, what was it? The, 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 the gap was, I think it was massive know? at one point. Like I, I mean, think it was I, double digits, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, even at, like after the Oilers eight game winning streak, they still weren't even in a wild card spot. They yeah. they were. I mean, I think by points percentage they were, but in terms of um, actual standings points, they it wasn't enough to even like you said be within ten points of them. So the fact that now I believe Vegas is something like eleven and fourteen in their last twenty five games after mm-hmm. that unbelievable start to the year in L.A. They had a a six or seven game losing streak. I think they finally won last night to to snap that. But now you look at it. Okay, the Oilers are three points behind the Kings with a game in hand. So, I mean, even with a win today, you're still only one point behind them with half a season to go. So that's up in the air. And then Vegas, the Oilers have five games in hand on them and are eight points behind. So 
if they were to win four of their next five games, that they would tie Vegas. So realistically, they're right there with the two of them. Uh, and the Oilers do have a lighter schedule through the, the second half of the season. I put out a, a tweet uh, about a, a week and a half ago that the Oilers had the uh, fourth hardest schedule in the league uh, to that point in the season, and they have the third easiest schedule the rest of the way. Uh, so there's a good chance that they could still catch one of these teams. And, you know, I think that at the start of the year, we were all thinking at least second in the division and, you know, perhaps the first division title in more than 30 years. But after that terrible start, we oil country had sort of just accepted that if we get in, it's going to be in a wild card spot, but that's no longer the case. They are firmly setting their goals on getting a top three spot. And, I I'm with you. I don't think that uh, it's out of the question that they could still get home ice. And obviously if you're going up against a, a team like LA or Vegas, who both play the Oilers tough, even though the Oilers have had the advantage uh, against LA the past two years and, you know, ultimately bowed out to the golden Knights this year, uh, having that extra home game and last change really uh, would make a big difference in a series like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of, as you mentioned, it's kind of, Born itself out there the last couple of years against LA, but yeah, and I I absolutely think they're going to catch LA. Um, I don't even think there's that you know that I think they could be ahead of LA by the end of the week, and 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 LA might not even pass the others the rest of the way. Like I I I think they might be. I LA had such a tremendous start and they had that incredible road win streak, but I I think they've really come back down to earth. They might fade out of the the playoff picture altogether because. Uh, I mean, you know what? Calgary's playing pretty good lately. Uh, like we mentioned, Seattle's coming on. Like there could be some other teams that are pushing to get into the wild card mix here too. Uh, and and we could just see LA fall out of the playoff picture entirely. And you, you mentioned you know five games in hand on Vegas. Uh, Vegas eleven and fourteen. Their last twenty five. I mean, that's no small stretch, right? No. Uh, that's that. It's not like they've gone on a. You know we. If you, if you think about Jack Eichel's on IR too, I mean, you never want to hope yeah. for injuries and I, I would never cheer for injuries for anyone, but you know, that is an impact and, you know, Mark Stone has had issues with uh, his back too. So, you know, you never know uh, if they're going to be sitting some more guys to sort of rest for the playoffs as we've seen them do in past years. So yeah, it's, it's totally possible that they could catch, like I said, one of, if not both of them, I think they will. I think they are going to finish second and that would set up probably a first round Edmonton Vegas series, which uh, would be a pretty intense way to start the playoffs going against the defending Stanley cup champions and uh, nothing that they're not used to though. They've, they've lost to the eventual champions the past two years. And um, if, if they did get past them, that would set up uh, an, an, an even more uh, epic second round against Vancouver, considering that they lost the first three games against them this year and having a chance to get some revenge and also play the Canucks in the first round or in the playoffs, I should say, for the first time since 1992 would be pretty cool to see. Vancouver's an interesting one, too, because, I mean, they're obviously this. This is a young team that's kind of not really been in this position before. Uh, they've just kind of accelerated to the top of the pack this year. And I, I, I am going to be curious to see how they fare in the playoffs. Um, yeah. Is that maybe relative inexperience going to, you know, it, like it depends on who they end up drawing. Let's say they do hang on and get the number one seed. I mean, they could end up going up against the, you know, a, a more experienced LA team in the one, eight matchup. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised team, if like, LA won that series. Right, right. St. Louis is kind of floating around in, in there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 
I I wouldn't necessarily even think that it would be a. I don't. I there's. I would not be that confident that Vancouver would be the team that the Oilers would face in the second round if we got to that point. But that that's kind of a. You know, there's there's so there's a lot of good teams out there, and you know, I just think in the other division, Winnipeg, Dallas. What? How much fun would it be if, if the Oilers could at some point in time here uh, lock up with Winnipeg with how good the Jets team is and. You know, wouldn't that be an incredible Western Conference final? Well, you know, a good friend of mine is a big Winnipeg Jets fan, and we've kind of talked about that possibility of them meeting in the the Western Conference final. And I believe it would be the first time that two Canadian clubs have faced each other in a conference final since 1994 when the Leafs played the Canucks. I think you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm pretty sure I can't think of any other time no no you're because there's only uh, been so many canadian teams that have made the the final since 94 uh yeah. i mean you've got well, the, even, the flames even, even just getting to the conference six. finals for a canadian team has yeah. been a big accomplishment it has. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. To, so, to have a, a all canadian matchup i mean uh it, it would be such an intense uh environment too and, and awesome for fans to see you know two former wha teams i know it, that these winnipeg jets aren't technically the the uh, incarnation from the WHA, but still just to see the Oilers and Jets go at it would be, would be an awesome Western conference final and uh, leading into one of them, you know, having a chance to book their ticket to the Stanley cup final makes it even uh, more exciting. Well, you know, imagine another potential matchup too, for the conference final could be Edmonton Dallas. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, we almost got that rematch in 2022 uh, when Dallas was playing Calgary. And I was really hoping that, uh, Dallas would uh, pu- would pull through in that uh, that final game in overtime because uh, I was hoping that we would get another shot at uh, you know revenge for 20 years earlier, but obviously it worked out even better than we could have imagined because the Oilers ended up playing the Flames and beating their biggest rival in such an epic fashion that I don't think anyone would want to trade those memories even for a win over Dallas. I remember, I remember a lot of people were cheering for Dallas at the time, and I was saying, like, no way, I, I, I want the Battle of Alberta. You wanted it, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know, it's I funny. Mean, now, you know, we've had the Battle of Alberta now, and it's been, what, I guess the last time it'll be coming up on 21 years? 21 years, right? This 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 spring. Since, since the Oilers in Dallas oh, last played in the playoffs, yeah. Yeah, so I think we're due. And, I mean, they played each other in six out of seven years, uh, you know, before yeah. that. So yeah, they, yeah. So you almost just uh, knew that the Oilers and Stars were going to be playing in the playoffs every year. And other than that, oh three. Well, I guess also they got swept one year. I think in either ninety nine or two thousand. But a lot of those years, even though Dallas was by far the better team on paper, uh, the Oilers really gave them all they could handle. Oh yeah, no. I mean, it's um, they. You know that most of the games were one goal games and would come down right to the end. And yeah, they uh, that's uh, you know, that's one of the, the reasons that I love those others teams so much is just like they they uh, they were in over their heads, but man, they didn't play like it. Yeah, that was a, a really likable team. And they, you know, Craig McTavish got every ounce of ability out of that roster that he could, you know, working on a shoestring budget and uh. You know, even talking about that 0-1 team that went on the nine-game winning streak, I, I think they ended up finishing sixth in the Western Conference that year. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, to think that that Oilers team with 
you know, a really strong first line of Waite, Garen, and Smith, but lines two through four, you know, really didn't match up against the true contenders in the Western Conference. The fact that they were able to finish sixth, I think, really speaks to, you know, how well that that team came together at the the most important time and, you know, pulled off that nine-game winning streak to not only make it into the playoffs, but uh, not just be the eighth seed either. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was all... It's it's funny. Like if 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 Dallas had finished first that year, the Oilers probably would have found a way to finish. <laughs> yeah, it's, it just seemed who whatever place they were getting, it was always going to line yeah. up. Uh, all right, I want to go back to McDavid now. We already talked about how he passed Glenn Anderson for the fourth most points in Oilers history over the weekend. However, McDavid also has the fourth most points in NHL history by a player before turning 27 with 906. He trails only Wayne Gretzky with 1,606, Mario Lemieux with 1,014, and Dale Howarchuk with 929. And if not for games lost to injury and the pandemic, McDavid would likely have over 1,000 career points by now. In your opinion, which of these two feats is more impressive? Ranking fourth in points for a franchise with as much talent as the Oilers have had in their history just nine years into his career— or being the only player in NHL history who played entirely in the 21st century with 900 points before turning 27. Oh, it's uh, the latter for sure. Um, I think like he's doing things that, you know, you and I talked about this before, but like you look at any, any of the great accomplishments that he has, you, you, you throw up these lists and you look at all the names on them. And they're all from the 80s, right? They're all from this other era, the, the highest scoring era in NHL history. And McDavid has got himself in this company, has put himself in, in company with, with these guys playing in an entirely different era. And, 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 you know, certainly scoring has kind of gone up a little bit from maybe when it really uh, platooned in like the late 90s, early 2000s. But now, but I mean, it's still nothing like it was in the 80s. So to me, that's most impressive. I mean, he's he's putting up... Uh, and and this this is a whole other topic, but I've I've often wondered too what it would be like. What how many points would Gretzky put up if he was playing in this era? How many points would McDavid put up if he was playing in in that era? Um, you have to look so, at the conditions of the league too, right? So yeah, if Gretzky's playing today, he has modern equipment, a modern you know a, a composite stick, uh, a different. Uh, eating and a nutrition regiment, right? Like mm. it's not, it's not the four hot dogs and a, a diet Coke before the game that, you know, he, he was accustomed to having back in the, the 1980s and 1990s. But, uh, there's so many different things about today's players. You know, the, the sports science is better. Uh, the, the information and equipment is so much better. Just the, the training. I think that if you put McDavid back into the eighties, you also have to remember that the pro style coaching that he's been receiving since probably age 10 also isn't there. So it's really hard to compare <clears throat> players from separate eras. You almost have to just compare them to their own era to, to really get a proper read. And I know they've done era adjusted stats to try and like even it out. But realistically, the fact that McDavid is at 900 points uh, be- before his 27th birthday and he's ahead of some other names on the list, like Steve Eiserman, Bobby Orr, uh, 
uh, who else was on here? I'm just going to pull that up again right now. Uh, Brian Trache, Yarmer Yager, Denny Savard. I mean, he even got to 900 points, 75 games faster than Sidney Crosby, who played in a similar era to McDavid. That just kind of shows you how dominant he's been over these, you know, first nine years of his NHL career. Yeah, it's been it's been remarkable. Like I say, like you look at you look at all these lists and it's just like it's it's all these guys from the 80s and then there's McDavid <laughs> in there. And it's a, it's pretty cool. I think I, I think that that speaks to just how incredible he is that he's so far above what anybody else in this time, this current era is is doing um, that that really speaks to his greatness. Yeah. And, you know, to think that Oilers fans were lucky enough to watch Wayne Gretzky in the 1980s and now Connor McDavid in the 2020s, you know, for fans of a certain vintage who were able to watch both of them, uh, you know, they've been pretty blessed uh, in their lifetime. And and then there's those of us who have been blessed to watch uh, Doug Wade and Connor McDavid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, Doug- and, I, and I'm quite happy with that, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, and I'm a little bit younger than you, but still those late 90s, early 2000s teams were really my sort of introduction to hockey. And I mean, when you are anywhere from, let's say, seven years old to 13 years old, those those teams that I watched at that time, it, it really, you know, left an impression on me and just showed me like that's what Oilers hockey is you know battling it out working so hard and you know scratching and clawing for everything you have we didn't know the the teams of the the 1980s and you know as I learned more about them as I got older and became a um a big fan of of that era of hockey especially uh we're not going to ever see that again but the fact that Last year, the Oilers scored 325 goals, and they have two players that are consistently at the top of the scoring race. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable run this last, you know, five, six years, seven years of seeing, um, you know, all the points that uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl and company have put up. It's not something that I had ever seen before, and probably the closest that anyone has seen uh, since those uh, dynastic teams back in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, no, they've um, this the it, uh, it's not hyperbole to say these they're generational talents. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, Brian, as we know, McDavid always takes his game up a few notches down the stretch drive. So just to wrap up the McDavid conversation, I have two questions for you. Uh, he currently has 907 career NHL points. He would need 93 points in the final 43 games to hit the 1,000 point mark this season. Do you think McDavid will reach a thousand points before the 23-24 campaign is over? And he also trails Nikita Kucherov by 15 points in the scoring race with four games in hand. Do you think McDavid will catch Kucherov and win his sixth Art Ross Trophy as scoring champion? Hmm. Well, the first one, I don't think he's going to get to a thousand, a thousand before the end of the season. I mean, that would just take like an incredible. What, what what's he he needs ninety three points in forty three games so he'll be averaging about like two point two two point one six I, I yeah I, I I can't see that I like I I think he's gonna finish uh you know I I talked about this a bit before but I think he's probably gonna finish with with fewer points than what he has put up the last couple seasons and that's just because of that's uh that's kind of how this team is right now and it's it's not a bad thing and it's 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 not even a criticism of him I just think that's how it's gonna turn out so as far as him though catching um. Uh, uh, the scoring uh, or taking over the scoring lead. That one, 
How many games in hand does he have? Five? Four games in hand, and he's Four 15 points hand. back. So it, at his current pace, if you if you think about uh, what he has right now, he has, let me bring this up, uh, 57 points in 37 games, which is a 126-point pace. So if he put up, um, let's say six points, seven points in those next four games. Now he's cut the deficit down to about, let's say, eight points with an even amount of games with Kucherov. In the final 40 games of the season, can he make up those eight points? Yeah, I think he could. I mean, I, 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 I think probably he's going to finish just kind of running the numbers through my, my skull here right now. I I'd probably write around 120 points, if not more. Uh, then that, I mean, I guess, which is probably when, what's a Kucherov on pace for right now? I will pull up his numbers and tell you in one second. Uh, so he's has a 1.67 points per game average, and I don't think he's missed any games. So that would oh, he's be. He's actually going to be over 130. He's on pace for 137. Yeah. Wow. I now, Con- Connor I missed know. two games, know. right? So yeah, that's a lot. One, he's going to. So yeah, McDavid's on pace for 183 in, or sorry, 123 in 80 games. But I, I honestly believe he's going to hit 130 this year again, Brian. Like, we know that. Coming into February, March, April is when he really picks up his game and puts up his most points. If you go back and look year over year, the last 25 games of the season, uh, he's usually hovering around just under two points a game. And I figure that given how you know important this time of year is, that he is going to pick it up and he'll probably come out of this. Like even last year, do you remember there was a in the middle of the season, there was a 20 game stretch, I think, where he had 21 points which is, you know, elite for most players, but down for McDavid's incredibly high standards. And then he just went on a tear and and ended up finishing the season with 153 points. Now, I don't think he's going to put up 150 points again this year, but uh, could he still get 130? I definitely think that's possible. And perhaps Kucherov slows down a bit too. So uh, it it wouldn't surprise me at all. And in fact, I'm banking on him not only winning his – uh, sixth Art Ross overall, but his fourth straight, which would make him the first player in over two decades to win four straight Art Ross trophies since Yarmer Yager from 1997-98 through 2000-2001. Yeah, it, for sure, it could it could definitely happen. I think a, a big part of it too will be uh, what Kucherov does, right? I mean, if it, it it'll be tough if Kucherov continues to score at this pace. Yeah, uh, we'll see if he can maintain this for another 40 games. That is a good point. All right. Um, we saw Evander Kane skating alongside Leon Dreisaitl and Warren Fogle at practice today. Kane has been playing on the third line for the last few weeks, but he could be back in the top six tomorrow night against the Toronto Maple Leafs. He has 14 goals on the year, but just two in his last 13 games. Uh, Brian, where do you think the best spot is to play Kane in the lineup right now? And will that change come playoff time? Uh, well, right now, honestly, I'm not even, you know, I don't, don't fix what ain't broke. Right. <laughs> I mean, so I, if, if it were me, I would just continue to roll the lines as we've been rolling them over the last 10 games. Um, but I think 
it's important to get him going because I think, and we've seen this in the playoffs the last couple of years, how crucial he is to this team's success. Uh, he's the kind of guy that I think his importance is elevated. Uh, the type of player that he is, his importance is elevated come playoff time. Um, and I, you know, I wonder if that's what part of what this is, is just to, to try and get him going because they know that when, when, when the crunch time comes, that he is going to play a big role in, in deciding how far this team goes. No, that's a good point. And I, I mean, like we said, he, he still is on pace for almost a 30 goal season. Uh, I would expect that if he gets to play with dry side on a more consistent basis, he could get over 30. Um, but really, to be a top point producer on this Oilers team, you have to be a regular part of the Oilers power mm-hmm. play unit. And because he only gets maybe 30 seconds of power play time uh, at the end of a, a power play when the, the big guys come off, it, it's hard to be a consistent point producer at that point because like you you really need to be out there with McDavid and Dreisaitl, Bouchard, Nugent Hopkins creating that, that uh, offense. And with Zach Hyman you know, firmly taking that net front role, I, I don't see Kane really getting a chance to move in there unless there was an injury. So it, it'll be tough for him to put up maybe the point totals that he's uh, capable of if he was on a, another team or if, if they, the Oilers were missing one of their top players. But, um, you know, like you said, he's a, a player that you're going to need come playoff time. There is that intimidation factor there. And uh, he's a big moment player too, right? I, I think back to last year against LA down four, three in game six, he scores that big clutch goal to send them to overtime that they eventually won. So uh, I would bank on uh, Kane still playing uh, higher in the lineup than he has been uh, recently when they get into the, the most important part of the year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's had some huge goals in, in the last couple of playoffs actually. And so I think that uh, he's, He's a the guy they're going to need in, in April and May and, well, maybe June. Yeah, let, let's hope they're still going in June. Uh, all right, uh, UFA winger Corey Perry's name has been linked to the Oilers by a couple insiders recently. Daily Faceoffs Frank Saravelli called the Oilers an authentic candidate to sign Perry, and now TSN's Chris Johnston says the Oilers would make sense for Perry as well. Uh, Brian, Perry has been among the most disliked players by Oilers fans for a long time, but he could soon be joining the Orange and Blue. At age 38, do you think Perry could still help this team? Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, if we're just talking about uh, on ice stuff, I mean, he was actually having a great start to this season. I, I think I he's, he's on pace he, for almost he, 20 goals. Yeah, he looks great for, for 38, uh, and he he can... The, the stuff that he brings is is like it's the stuff that I, I don't think the tools that he has can help any team. There's no team that's going to turn down that kind of player. And he's, you know, we've seen examples of it against the Oilers. How he's a player you hate to play against, but probably would like on your team. Yeah, he's exactly. He's he's you know he's kind of Claude Lemieux like in that in that sense. And Claude Lemieux was like a team that or a player that every team he went to had incredible success in the playoffs. He's, He's that kind of guy. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Do you think going not, to I three think... straight Stanley cup finals recently also is something that would, would benefit the Oilers that experience. He, I mean, he did win a cup early in his career in 2007, but just, you know, going on a few deep playoff runs, uh, could that rub off on some of the guys as well? 
Yeah, I, I would think so. And I, um, I can't remember where I was. I heard this. Uh, it was. It was. I can't remember if it was on um, on Sportsnet or might have been on a uh, radio or or something. But anyway, there was a conversation in the last week. I I heard about. Uh, you know how important is it for the Oilers to have that Stanley Cup experience? Because right now there's no one on this team who has won a Stanley Cup, and and uh, I'm not sure. Is there anyone who's even played in the final? Oh, I'm just trying to rack my head right now. Uh, Brett Kulak with the Montreal Canadiens. Uh... Okay, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, how how is is that an overrated thing? Is that whole thing about experience and having guys, just having a guy or two who's who's been there and won that? In well, the Oilers have been on uh, two relatively deep playoff runs the last two years. I mean, third round in 2022, second round last year. So uh, there is playoff experience there, but there isn't like a long track record of winning that this group has. Like when you look at Vegas's lineup, uh, I mean, 90% of their team has won a Stanley Cup before. So they, mm-hmm. they've been there. You know, you look at Colorado, they've lost some guys from their cup team, but probably... I would say three quarters of their lineup has, you know, is still a carryover from that Stanley Cup championship team. So, uh, Tampa Bay, even though they're a little further down the standings now, a dangerous team come playoff time because they've won a lot before. Uh, the Oilers don't have that yet. I, I do feel like if they get in and they get rolling the way that they can, um, then this they they could go all the way. And, and if the Oilers do get to the final, I just feel like. The first time McDavid and Drysaddle play in a Stanley Cup final, they're not going to miss. Um, I'll be fascinated to see how they would perform in in that environment. Um, yeah, that's uh, it, it would be interesting to see. Um, I'd be curious, you know, what what the stats are like if you look at teams that win the Stanley Cup. How many how many players on their roster had previously won a Stanley Cup prior to that? And and I yeah. just think about I mean, that's, that a, that's a deep dive that you know you yes. might have to research later in the season as well. But but I, but I think like even if even if we think back to say the Oilers' very first Stanley Cup championship team yeah. in eighty now of course in eighty four most of them would have played in eighty three. Yeah. Uh, the team that got there in eighty three, I don't know if anyone on that roster had previously been to the Stanley Cup. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it'll be, I mean, some guys like when they get there, they just take to it right away. I mean, I think the, I think the penguins were with, with Crosby and Malkin were, you know, they were dynamite performers in the Stanley cup right away and yeah. they didn't, uh, Colorado as well. Um, so you, you could be right. I mean, it, it could be the, it's the biggest stage and when McDavid and Dreisaitl hopefully do get there, they, uh, they might take over. Yeah. I, I wouldn't bet against it. And, you know, the other thing is with Perry. 20 years ago, he almost became an oiler. There was that trade in December 2003 yeah. where yes. Mike Mike Comrie ended up going to the Philadelphia Flyers, but yeah. they had a trade in place with the Anaheim Ducks until, once again, the cash-strapped Oilers had Kevin Lowe, who reportedly was asking for Mike Comrie to pay back his bonus. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's even trade. reported. I think it's pretty much been... Uh been settled that, that that is what happened but uh, which yeah, makes sense uh, for the team at the time but i mean can you imagine how different history goes if Corey perry ends up joining the oilers uh midway through the 2003 2004 season do they end up winning that cup in 06 with you know him as a rookie or you know how different does the decade of darkness play out 
Uh, I try not to dwell on anything that happened before the McDavid lottery, though, because I feel like every decision, good or bad, led to the Oilers landing McDavid in in that draft. So um, I've let all of that go. But yeah, you, you can see that there were some missed opportunities where they, you know, could have or they just could have drafted Perry in 2003 when they they had the chance and picked uh, Mark Antoine Pouliot instead. Yes, yes, that probably would have been the easiest way to two uh, to two get opportunities to do it, right? So yeah, yeah, it's it's so you know once again, like I said, I've let it all go, but it was frustrating at the time when you look back that almost every NHL team got a substantial player from that 2003 draft, and the Oilers were one of the only ones that didn't. Yeah, they were. Uh, I mean, they've. I, I think they've done a pretty good job drafting recently. But I yeah, mean, right. I'll, up I'll take for, getting the best player from the 2014 and 2015 yeah. draft, respectively. That that helps a lot. But I mean, the the Oilers, the Oilers for for a good chunk of their first uh, 25 years had a, I would probably say a pretty dubious um, draft record, especially in the 80s. Anyway, and then you look at examples like the 2003 year. But it's uh, yeah, you know you're right. I, I mean, everything just everything leads to to one place, and uh, who knows what who knows how differently things turn out if um if 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 that happens. So yeah, here we and, are. And as I mentioned, Perry probably is one of the five most disliked players by Oilers fans in the league right now. I would guess uh, if I was able to take a poll of it, I think he would still be at the top, uh, even though the rivalry that. You know, he had with the Ducks, you know, hasn't been there for several years now, but just there are longstanding memories there, you know, throughout the, the 2010s and even going back uh, to those, you know, I guess that 2006 uh, series when when he first uh, was breaking in with with Anaheim in, in the playoffs against Edmonton. But uh, can you think of another time where a player who was as disliked by the fan base ended up joining the Oilers? Hmm. I can't. <laughs> I mean, Evander Evander Kane wasn't, you know, a, a player who was loved by any means. I, I don't know if he was at the top of the most disliked players. Yeah. Well, but... no, actually, that's a, that's a good one. Like I, he, yeah, um, I would put him up there. But that was different. That was kind of like you know, with a lot of the stuff that he just had going on around him, and people were. There was there was a lot of skepticism uh, about about some of that stuff, and I think that's what. So I think I kind of put him in a different category because people right. it, people didn't feel that way about him based on of like a out of a hockey rivalry, which is what. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like a true rivalry, like a player on a rival who Oilers fans had a lot of disdain for, end up coming in and playing for the team. I, I don't know if I could think of anyone who would be on Perry's right. level off the top of my head. Right. No, I can't think of anyone. There's honestly, actually, no one is really coming to mind at all. And just to Uh, piggyback off that question, do you think it would be uh, an instant acceptance by the fan base or or you you don't think there would be a gradual period of accepting him and embracing him in oil country? No, I think he would get a big ovation his first time on the ice, and the first time he does something dirty to somebody on the other side, everyone (laughs) go crazy. Finally, he's doing it for us instead of against us. Yeah, no, I because I, you know I, that I, something dirty is coming. That's just in his DNA. He can't help yes. himself. Yes, exactly. No, I, I, I think it'll be a, it'll, it'll be a love affair. Yeah, and uh, you know, 
maybe he is the third line option. I I, I know Bob Stoffer put out, uh, or he said on a, a Sportsnet broadcast that uh, he thinks the Oilers will add uh, at least one top six forward and one bottom six forward before the deadline. Now, he didn't say how they will add. So if Perry is that bottom six forward, that maybe still means that they will go out and explore the trade market to fill that that top six role. A name like Jake Gensel has been tossed out there. I don't know how likely that is. I think Perry is probably a, a more likely player to come to Edmonton. But I just think the fact that multiple insiders from different organizations have now linked these these two together that there there's certainly some smoke there and uh, i i wouldn't be surprised if we see this end up happening you know perry alone would be a big addition if if it's perry and then another uh then another top six player i mean my goodness that's uh that's huge and uh my last topic before we move on this is just kind of a fun one but uh you know you and i are both uh jersey aficionados and uh you know like to look back at uh, some of our favorite jerseys over the year we did on a previous episode and um you know last year the nhl all-stars did a miami vice themed jersey which was uh they used a logo i think from the 1994 in design uh of the all-star game when they played in sunrise florida this year it's sort of a a 90s ish theme that uh, was designed in part by justin bieber and there's four different ones that have come out uh with sort of the adidas stripes down the side i've seen some people say that they look like doritos jerseys i've seen (laughs) others say that they look like the power rangers there's been you know various jokes that have been made uh what do you think of them in general i I, i'm guessing because uh you know you and i are, are both uh 90s pop culture uh fans that uh you know you're you might be a fan of these ones yeah, Doritos jerseys, that's funny. I can actually see that. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I liked them when I first saw them. I, I I thought they looked pretty cool. I thought they were a little bit different, but I think they were too too out there, too crazy. Um, I thought they, they, they seemed to look better on the rack than they did when they were, when they were actually being worn. Like, I know yeah. the, uh, the Hockey Night Canada uh, panel uh, threw them on um, when they unveiled them, but they didn't look quite as good being worn as they did when they just showed them. But well, we'll see what they look like when they're nice. But no, I think they're cool. I think they're something kind of different. Um, and uh, it almost has you know, like I mean, a just, cartoonish look. Like the stars in them look like Super Mario World stars to me. Yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> I, I think I think that's kind of fun. I like it. Um, yeah. So I. I you know, I, I, from what I could tell, it was not widely embraced. But then again, these all-star jerseys are generally not widely embraced. It seems to be kind of a, yeah, it, it seems to be kind of still a thing with 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 hockey fans or NHL fans, where it's um the 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 more out there it gets, the the less they like it. I, I think the the pink and light green uh, jerseys that they did last year, like I said, with the sort of the 1980s Miami Vice theme, were really cool. And they actually did use the Western and Eastern Conference logos that were on the All-Star jerseys back at that yeah. that time. So uh, it's very hard to top those ones. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that anything was going to be sort of viewed as a step down, but they obviously can't uh, use those same ones year after year. Uh, we, we haven't seen consistent All-Star jerseys uh, since probably the 1980s when they the Campbell and Wales Conference wore the same ones. Uh, several years in a row now there's just too much marketing you know you have a a jersey in a different city you want to have 
uh, a new jersey to sell to the fans. So I think those days have gone are, are just seeing, uh, you know, one standard jersey year over year. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the fun of it, seeing what kind of design they come up with, and especially if they try to incorporate, like, the uh, motif that's either, whether it's reflective of, like, the local region, like you mentioned last year with Miami Vice, or pop culture in the area, or, or the team itself. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is marketing, and obviously with getting the, the beebs to design it is a big part <laughs> of that, too, but... Um, it's fun. It's uh, it's just another kind of cool element to this, and um, I, I like I like kind of what they're doing with All Star Weekend this year too, taking it to three days and they just kind of like making it into a into a big event. The the skills competition, you know, should be you know interesting too, and it really that's the one thing that I look forward to the most out of All Star Weekend because you're not going to see the best hockey um, in the game. Uh, that's a given, but the fact that they've sort of revamped the the Super Skills event and that there's only going to be 12 players participating with one winner at the end. And uh, I believe it's a $1 million prize to whoever wins mm. it. And and the fact that the league actually consulted with Connor McDavid on putting this thing together, uh, it'd be really cool to see Connor end up winning that thing too. And uh, just sort of, you know, in his hometown in Toronto, it would be a, a pretty uh, cool way for the, the, the weekend to wrap up. I'm looking forward to this new look skills competition and actually to just like you said, more than I honestly, I probably won't even watch the game, no. <laughs> but or the games, but uh, the, the skills competition is something I will make a point to see. And Brian, just to close out the show tonight, I thought we'd do another trivia, which was something we did the last episode you were on, and you ended up going 10 and 9 on that one. So just to kind of explain how we did it again, I have a top 10 list here for you, and you're going to attempt to name all the top 10 players on this list correctly before you get 10 incorrect answers. So like I said, last time you had... You had 10 correct. You got all of them with nine strikes. You got almost to the end of your strikes um, and you didn't use any of your three lifelines. So I'll just explain again what the lifelines are. If you're stuck on a guy that you can use, um, one lifeline will tell you all the teams that this player played for. The other one will tell you the jersey number that they wore or the main jersey number if they wore multiple ones. And the third one will be country that they were born in. So you're ready to attempt this. I am, and if I was, if if I had nine strikes last time, I gotta beat this this time. So we're going for we're going for at worst eight strikes. So right, so last time when I had you on in October 2022, you did the top ten point getters in Oilers history. Tonight you are going to name the top ten in points in the NHL in the 1990s. Oh. So we're okay. going from Oilers in the 90s to the entire league for the oh 90s this time. So okay. uh, I've got the, the top 50 in front of me here. Uh, right. this, this goes, of course, from January 1st, 1990 until December 31st, 1999. So being okay. that this era, you know, is uh, one that you grew up watching. No extra pressure, but I know that you'll be familiar with this group probably. Uh, so I'll let you take it away. Well, first I'll go with uh, Jaeger. Coming in at number two with 928 points, Yarmer Jager. Uh, Any surprise Sakic? there that he's two? Yes. Yes, I am surprised that he's two. And that's already got me wondering. Uh, Sakic? <laughs> 
coming in at number five with 895 points, Joe Sackick. So 2-0 and o to start. I gotta think, yeah, Gretzky's gotta be on there, right? Well, Brian, coming in at number one with 940 points, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> and uh, another fact, Gretzky is the only player in NHL history to lead multiple decades in points. He, uh, I mean, of course, he led the, the 1980s in points, almost 1,000 points more than uh, the player in second place. But uh, he did finish uh, at the top of the 1990s as well. That's absolutely crazy because I mean you yeah obvi- I mean he was obviously still incredible at the at the beginning of the decade but I I kind of like think that you know his last few seasons his point production has really slowed down I but I guess that just shows yeah. how great he was at the start. Well, the I mean if we think about it, it was probably eight. I think yeah he he was at about nineteen almost nineteen hundred points. Um, at the end of the 80s. I think he was around because he hit his 1851st point in October of 1989, obviously, when he broke the record in Edmonton with the Kings. Yeah. And there were still two more months after that. So I, I think he got his 1900th point in the 90s, actually, once the decade had started. But yeah, I mean, still to be at nearly a thousand points. Um, in the nineties, which was almost entirely his thirties. Uh, I mean, just also speaks to, you know, his longevity of greatness. So, so I've got Gretzky. You've got Yager. Gretzky at one with 940 points. Yager at number two with 928 points, only 12 behind Gretzky. And you've got Joe Sackick in fifth with 895 points. Okay. Let's go. Steve Eiserman. Coming in at number four with 896 points, one ahead of Sackick, Steve Eiserman. All right. Uh, sticking with uh, guys who played in Detroit, Brett Hall's got to be there. Coming in at number six with 873 points, Brett Hall. So you're 5 and 0 to start, and you've got five of the top six off the board. Okay. Uh... Are you surprised you haven't got three yet? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, yeah, kind of, um, this guy's not, he's not going to be number three, but Mark Messier. That's your first miss coming in at number 13 mm. with 773 Mark Messier. He missed the list by about 50 points. Oh, I, okay. Uh, uh, Ron Francis has probably got to be in there. Coming in, at, number three. coming in at number nine with 822 points. Uh, actually, I'm going to correct myself. Nine and ten are a tie. And uh, number uh, the other guy gets the tiebreaker because he has more goals. So tec- technically coming in at number 10, Ron Francis with 822. So now you're up to six and one. Off to a pretty strong start. Jeremy Roenick. Coming in at number 11 with 793 <laughs> points, Jeremy Roenick. Six and two. Yeah, he finished, uh, what would he have been? 29 points back of Ron Francis, who's in 10th. So, well, I got two misses now. Yep, six and two. Uh, Mike Medano. 
Coming in at number 17 with Ooh. 734 points, Mike Medano. So six and three. I gotta think. That was your lowest one so far because you've had uh, 11, 13, and 17 now. Yeah, I think I, okay, I, this guy, yeah, this guy might be number three, Mark Recchi. Coming in at number seven with 866 points, Mark Recchi, which takes you up to seven and three. So you've got your three lifelines remaining. You could just use the three and and, and clean it up. But uh, if you want to try and do it like last time without any lifelines, you can go if, for that. If, if, I, if I start getting in trouble where I, uh, <laughs> okay. where I look like I'm going to. Yeah, no, let's, let's, we'll keep going for. Um, I'm Are you finding this say, list harder than the Oilers? Because you know, oh yeah, when it yeah, was the no, Oilers, I, mean, I, I know the Oilers a lot better than I do the the obviously the league as a whole. But um, it was tough because there were almost two separate eras of Oilers hockey in the '90s, right? Yes, yeah. And trying to determine which of them, like, is a is a Craig McTavish on the list compared to is a um, a, a Bill Guerin on the list, right? Like two guys who played at different times, but uh, were they able to crack the top 10? Whereas these players, regardless of whether they got traded or not, were there for basically most of them um, the whole decade. I mean, you'd you'd really need to play, at, I think, nine out of the 10 years for sure to uh, to make this list. Like Yager debuted in 1990. And, you know, here he is in number two on the list. But I, I think everyone that's what, that's else. I've been mean, like, I've been tempted just just because just to throw out the Mew, but I'm sure he's probably not in there. Uh, yeah, because you have to take like, into the, account injury. And I'm not going to say whether he is or not, but yeah, um, no, I but mean, the, you could imagine yeah. if he was fully healthy, which he obviously wasn't, that, uh, you know, I, I would think that he would probably be number one. I am going to go with Luke Robitaille. Oh, I just have another one too, but let's try Luke Robitaille. <laughs> okay, well, I have to dig onto the list a little bit here. I can tell you he didn't make it. Okay. Um, I was trying to scroll to find his name here, but uh, wasn't one of the, the top ten. Oh, found him, found him. 15th. 752. (laughs) So, I mean, all your misses have been not too far off the mark. Ronick at 11, Messier at at 13, Robitaille 15, Medano 17. So, still 7 and 4. I'm going to go with Doug Gilmore. Coming in at number 12 with 785, Doug Gilmore. So that gets you Have to I 7 got, and like, 5. all of 10 through 15? Uh, <laughs> or 11 through 15? Uh, except for 14, yeah. <laughs> okay. Other than 14 uh, and 16, you've, you've been pretty good for that top 10 to 15 range. Um, 7 and okay, 5. So. Uh... Oh, of course. Uh, Theo Fleury. Coming in at number nine, tied with Ron Francis for points, but with more goals, Theo Fleury. So I'm missing two. Yep, you're eight and five, and the numbers you are missing are number three and number eight. 
number three. Uh... So you still have five strikes. So you're not in imminent danger, but you know the the uh, lifelines may need to be used at some point. And number eight. Okay, this guy's not going to be number three, but I think he might be number eight. Brendan Shanahan. Coming in at number 18 with 724 points, Brendan Shanahan. Eight and six. Okay, I think I'm going to have to use a lifeline here. Yeah, because I want to. I want to. Well, I want to get less strikes. Okay. Fewer strikes than last time. More than I'm concerned about using my lifeline. So let's go to my lifeline. Let's, let's okay. So you're eight. Lifeline. You're eight and six at the moment. So yeah. you can have your choice. So for three or eight, you have. The list of teams they played for, mm-hmm. the jersey number they wore for the majority of their career, or the country they were born in. So obviously the list of teams is probably going to be the biggest hint. Jersey number, you know, not as helpful, but more so than the country they're from. Okay, let's go. So your most helpful lifeline would be list of teams if you wanted to use that one. Yeah. This number three is really throwing me like there's about I can think of like 15 guys who could be number eight. But number let's let's use the, the list of teams for number three. OK. I will read you his teams in order. Teams that number three played for Detroit Red Wings, St. Louis Blues, Boston Bruins. Washington Capitals, oh, Philadelphia Flyers. This is Adam Oates, right? <laughs> Anaheim Mighty Ducks, Edmonton Oilers. Coming in at number three with 902 points, Adam Oates. Yeah. You got it before I even finished the list. That's uh, that that's well, that's one of those ones where it's like you don't really necessarily think of him, right? But he had like he had some monster seasons there in the er, uh, early 90s. I mean, it, uh, he finished second in the NHL in assists in the 1990s yeah. behind Gretzky. Yeah. So, I mean, that he's making this list majorly on his assist totals. But, uh, but I mean, in, in fairness, I guess so is Wayne, though. Like, in the 90s, Gretzky had 238 goals and 702 assists. So, that I mean, that kind of shows you. But that would be typical to the 80s as well like he would have had over a thousand assists in the 80s but uh also you know equal parts of dominant goal scorer and playmaker where he was almost primarily a passer at, at this stage mm-hmm. of his career so you are now nine and six let's and use let's you have your use one country life. here okay for number eight he is canadian he's canadian okay okay that helps that helps that eliminates if uh a few Europeans I was thinking of. And you still have jersey number for him as well if you want. Nine and six looking to well, improve on his I don't know if I, I don't know if that'll make it. I'm not that, always not that great with jersey numbers, but let's, okay. let's let's do it. Now he did wear multiple numbers throughout his career. But the number that he wore mainly on most of his stops was number seventy seven. Pierre Turgeon? Coming in at number eight with 858 points, Pierre Turgeon. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Probably the, the most, uh, you know, the least one that you would think of to be on this list. I would never. He was not even 
I have so many names rattling around in my head. He was not one of them. And I never thought that, because uh, I'm really not that great with numbers. I wouldn't have, but I mean, that's such a unique number. I mean, the, I'll give you some of the other ones on the list too, because you did get most of the, the top 20, but uh, uh, Vincent Damfus in 14th. Uh, okay. Matt Sundin in 16th. Uh, you obviously I gotta had. Sh- has got to be in there, right? Uh, let me look. You had Shanahan at 18th. Uh, Al- Alexander McGilney at 19th. Yeah. Mario Lemieux at 20th. Uh, but once again, best points per game average of the 90s by some margin, like e- even a lot better than Gretzky uh, in the 90s. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, obviously would have been number one if healthy. And then number 21, Sergei Fedorov. Oh, Fedorov 21. Okay. And oh, then the, wow. yeah, the list the list goes on. There's some pretty big names in the top 50, but yeah, I, I think maybe the most surprising is you know Terjan, a sneaky good player there throughout uh, his prime. Oh, I I would yeah, he was he definitely was, and that's like it. He he was very under the radar because I would never. <laughs> I I probably could have rattled off 20 more names and I wouldn't have got him. So do you think it was because uh, he maybe played for Buffalo and the Islanders and you know? then sort of bounced around to like the Habs, Blues, Stars. Like he, it wasn't like he was in a, a Stanley Cup situation where, you know, he's playing alongside some of the bigger name superstars in the league. I, I think, I think part of it is to like, you, there isn't a team that you can identify him with. That's fair. You know, I think, I mean, he I, was a first again, overall probably, pick. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. Uh, most of these guys, like the, these guys, like there's a team that you would, identify them with except for Adam Oates who also you know made the rounds but you think a lot of the other guys like Flurry Flurry is a is a flame uh I guess Brett Hall's got a couple teams you can think of but he's I mean he's a blue uh Sackick's I mean Iserman's a red wing Sackick's an avalanche Jagger Penguins so a lot of these guys have like distinctive teams Ron Ron Francis he obviously had his most success uh probably in Pittsburgh, but I think of him as like a Hartford Whaler. That's true. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Pierre it's Turgeon, hard to say which like, team is most known for. Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah. So uh, when you're bouncing oh, out just many one. teams. Yeah. I mean, you got it against, what was your final uh, 10 and six? 10 and six. Oh, now I've set the bar too high for, not, <laughs> for next time. Now I'm really yeah. under pressure. I'm wondering time. if I have to switch I it up from to 10, 10 and seven or 10 and eight. So I would have, it be easier to top next time. You know, maybe one of these lists, you're just going to run the table and go 10 and 0. <laughs> well, if you're, if, if, if you may have to keep doing the podcast for like 20 more years for that to happen. But well, yes, we, I'll, we I'll try and stay in your wheelhouse. I mean, I, I know that you're a, a smart hockey fan for any era, but uh, I think that the 90s is probably one that you and I both appreciate a lot and uh, that uh, you'd have a, a good shot of doing it in. Yeah, no, no, this is this would be the only I uh, maybe eighties too, but yeah, any the eighties and nineties would be the only year I, I could pull possibly pull this off. So yeah, no, that was good. That was good. That's awesome, man. Well, Brian, just before we call it a night, I know you you're writing a lot as always. I love reading your work over at the hockey writers. I think you've put out probably more than ten articles already this year. Um just do you have anything that you're working on or coming up or things that you're following that people can keep an eye out for? Uh, yeah, the next the next one I'm uh, what I'm working on right now is actually is um, kind of looking at how uh, Zach Hyman was snubbed from the All Star game and maybe looking yeah. at new ways the NHL can go about uh, selecting their All Stars to make sure that the 
it because obviously it's 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 part of it's a big thing is a popularity contest and it's, it's for the fans right and you will so you want to have the fans have a voice to get players there but i think it's also important that players who are really deserving are, are recognized so i I've come up with a few different uh, suggestions about how the NHL can maybe reformat how they pick all-stars, where they where they can still check all the boxes of making sure every team has at least one representative and making sure fans get their voice, but then also making sure that, that uh, the the player with the fifth most goals in the league is also gets to be there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that was a big mistake by the NHL not putting him there. I mean, I talked about this on the last episode I did too, but what an opportunity Here's a guy who, like you said, is near the top of the goal-scoring race. Uh, He's having the best year of his career, uh, even topping last season, which many thought would be his career year. And just to have it in his hometown, he's 31. Like, if not this year, when? And that's exactly it, right? I mean, this was... And you just saw it was such a cool... The, the sort of the groundswell support from Oilers fans, really fans everywhere. You saw his dad. I know his yeah, dad retweeted yeah. some you know, of his, stuff. His dad and I follow, like, we follow each other on Twitter, and, and he basically retweets anything I ever tweet about Zach, as well as many other people, any, yeah. any comments that they had about him. So, like, huge supporter of him, and I was oh, just so hoping that he would get there. Because, look, McDavid's been seven times now. Uh, Dreisaitl's been six times. They're going to go several more times in their career, too. But this was going to be probably Zach Hyman's best chance to this, ever this do it. This is his best shot. And, uh, and yeah. I'm kind of hoping that, and, and again, uh, you know, I, I don't wish injury or anything ill will right. upon anybody. But usually, it's, it almost always happens that, like, out of, you know. I Someone mean, backs out. Yeah, there's, four, there's 42 players in the All-Star game, right? Or 44. 44? Yeah. 44 players in the All-Star game. The odds are that someone's probably going to get sick and someone's probably going to get hurt and someone's probably going to have to back out for a reason. So there's there's probably going to be a couple of roster openings. I hope that one way or another, Hyman finds his way to Toronto yet. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's a shame that some players do back out because I think even if it is like, you know, you're losing a bit of time that you could be spending on the beach with your family during that, you know, break, it's good that... You know, you get to have this experience because most players never get the chance to play in an all-star game. I remember Wayne Gretzky saying that in an interview that uh, he played in 18 all-star games in his career. The only two he missed were the, was in 93 when he had the injury and 95 when there was the lockout. But he never turned it down because he knew how many of his teammates would love to go just once, but were never going to get that chance. So he savored every opportunity. And there have been like, not I, I don't mean to like, come down on a guy like Ovechkin or something who's turned it down multiple times in the past but you know like you'd think that all the superstars if they get voted into it that they would want to go be a part of this and you know it's like sort of a celebration of the game and for someone like Hyman who won't have that chance now it's it's disappointing for him because it would have been really cool to see him in Toronto come back and you know representing the Oilers in the in the 2024 All-Star game yeah yeah his hometown in the arena where he started his career I mean it was just it was poetic really yeah. right so it's uh but you know what like i say i mean there could be maybe he'll still find his way there yet it's still there's still uh, almost three two and a half weeks until the all-star game yet yeah. who knows what happens so but i i totally agree with that and i want to read your article because uh they shouldn't have situations like this where a player is clearly an all-star i wrote an article about hyman recently too saying you know he's an all-star regardless of if he gets voted in or not and uh, this is uh, it's a it's a shame that he's not going to get that opportunity or, or like you said, still might. But um, he should have been a lock to, to be going. For sure. For sure. So 
we'll see. But uh, you know what? Um, we uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun watching what he's been achieving this season, and um, I think uh, he's very he, he's very much appreciated in Edmonton. We can oh, say yeah. that much. He's got yeah. a lot of Ryan Smith in him, which is a great way to uh, endear yourself to the fans. Absolutely, absolutely. <sighs> All right, Brian. Uh, where can people find you? Ah, at Twitter at Brian Swain, um, and that's pretty much it. I'm on Instagram, but rarely ever, so I couldn't <laughs> even tell you what my, what my handle is on Instagram. So, so find me on Twitter or find me on X. Sorry, they're, find me on they're, X. They're, they're going to come more for your Oilers tweets than your your photography skills. So. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Come for the random stats. You yeah, I, yeah, you know, and I, I've, I've shouted you out for this in the past, but um, I mean, you do more than just Oilers stats. You you find in the summer um, Blue Jays stats a lot of the time. And uh, even during the winter, I don't think I've seen anyone who is ever better at finding Canadian basketball stats. There's always some new fact that a, a Canadian basketball player uh, has uh, accomplished or, or milestone they've hit. And it's pretty cool to see that. So uh, yeah, credit to you for that. Uh, you're, you're one of the the people that I like to follow the most for kind of those interesting things that you dig up. Well, I, I yeah, I know we are kind of the same way. We both kind of have, um, we both kind of dig these unique and kind of random facts and stats. So we, yeah. we always have lots of fun uh, chatting about them too. So I, I appreciate that. Without a doubt. All right, Brian, have a good night. You too. So for Brian Swain, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.